Hi, and welcome to the Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast. Every week, we will talk to the great, the good, and the legendary from the worlds of food, drink, marketing, and business to help give you the advice that will really help your brand boom. A huge thanks to our headline sponsors, the award-winning Engage Interactive. Engage Interactive have been helping hospitality businesses like yours prepare for a mobile and digital first world since 2007. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. So today I'm in a hot, sweltering bedroom with all the windows closed and the curtains drawn to try and give some half-decent acoustics for this podcast. So today I had quite a few podcasts on, I actually had four in a row, so I seem to be busier than ever. Um, without the income bit, so like a lot of people, I'm sure, uh, watching their bank balance tick down. But it's been great, keeps you motivated, keeps you chatting to people and keeps you checking in with the situation of lockdown and coronavirus at this time. This episode will be going out in a few months' time after, so hopefully everyone's business and heads and all these things is in a better place. Today, I've got the great, great opportunity to talk to one of the trailblazers in the industry, actually, who is Chris Miller from White Rabbit Fund. If you haven't heard of White Rabbit Fund, Chris has just got this amazing sort of incubator system where he goes in like a crack SES team and marries up with the talent, which is maybe the chef or, or the business, and gives them the support networking system to then actually make their business grow and into something bigger than it might have been if it was just single operator owned and ran. Chris has some amazing brands that he's working with. So he's got Lena Stores, uh, which you might know in Soho and King's Cross. He's also got Kim's with Anthony Wong. And he's also got a couple of others, Island Pokey, which I'm sure you've seen popping up all over London and maybe even beyond by now. And then the last one is Cricket, which is just a real masterclass in incredible Indian cuisine. So with that, I'll hand you over to myself and Chris having a chat. And it's really great because we go deep into how Chris started from Millie's Cookies to Soho House to then becoming now what he's doing with White Rabbit Fund. And also we explore what makes great brands, what he's looking for in investment, and also the investment opportunities that you all have to help support your business, grow your business, and be a game changer in your career. So it gives me the most down the rabbit hole pleasure ever uh, to introduce my great guest today, uh, someone that I've spent a bit of time with and also interviewed a couple of times. So I'm very excited to see what else uh, he's got to say. It's the wonderful Chris Miller of White Rabbit Fund. Hello. Hi, Mark. How are you? Good. Good. Yeah, I'm all good. Just sun is shining in, in Brighton and... Um, yeah, probably about my 10th coffee in, <laughs> trying to stay awake. <laughs> you know, I very early start today, so it's been a long day already, but... Yeah, def- I mean, I, I think I was about five-ish, so yeah, just um, there's a lot going on and a lot a lot ticking over. So we're recording this at the end of April, and, you know, we're going to talk about happier things and better things in you and, and, and your career and advice and all these great things, but... 
it'd be quite good just to dip into quickly, um, you know, how you're feeling at the moment, what's going on, and you know how you're how you're seeing the current state of things. Obviously, it's an incredibly difficult time, and yeah, we currently have 15 restaurants, and we went from 15 successful restaurants making money to zero income in about a two-week period, which um, that's not a scenario any of us ever uh, planned for. But, but equally, there's a there is a positive side to that, which is during those times there is a um, there's a, there's a, a a lot of innovative companies that you're you're seeing a lot now, but there will be opportunities, new ideas, and actually where we're placed, which is a a platform that 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 backs early stage. Um, uh, creative chefs and entrepreneurs um yeah there should be some exciting opportunities out there and and we'll still have a platform that's that we can help support these people to to launch and grow um so yes there's a lot of difficulty now and we're we're managing that um but i i do think we'll we'll be in a position hopefully to come back um and uh, and yeah continue to to, to back early stage companies and, and help launch and grow them. I think I think that's, you know, just a great way to look at it, which is this is an opportunity. You know, a lot of, you know, I've just seen an article from um, Martin at M Restaurants and, mm. and he said something I was thinking, you know, in the past few interviews and calls that I've been doing and it's like, this is going to be a massive reset for, you know, the whole industry and it's a great chance for people that are brilliant to keep being brilliant and keep moving it forward. But it's also a chance for the ones that maybe haven't been faring so well to have a legitimate rebirth and, yeah. you know, be more agile about what they offer and, you know, and, and actually being able to tell that story to consumers, you know, but if you were an Italian restaurant and then all of a sudden, you know, and you're, you're maybe more mass or something like that, but then all of a sudden, you're changing it up to being something else or you're going more digital or whatever it is, I think people will kind of move with you a bit more easily now. So there's a chance for those people. I mean, obviously, you can't give up and just die, but I think it's actually a great chance for them to reboot as well and, yeah. and look at their business entirely differently without egg on their face of, of feeling like they failed. Well, it'll be the businesses that can can flex their offering and innovate that will be able to come out of this. I I think some of the larger, let's call them old wave of of chain restaurants that will be far more difficult to adapt in a situation like this. Um, mm-hmm. you know, as bad as things are, I think we're in a lucky position that we're still relatively small and and flexible. And it's easier for me to make a to make a change. Um, like with Lena Stores, within a week we've we've launched um, online grocery delivery. It has a, a uh, the deli's been operating for 75 years so we've been able to to tap into that and launch that online and that's already doing doing incredibly well so there's yeah you know, that alongside deliveries alongside some other bits and pieces there's some really interesting opportunities that we can do with with some of those brands fundamentally the industry is going to change but the, the joy for hospitality i think there's only really three reasons why people are going to leave the house in the future and um one of those is hospitality um people will still want to eat drink and socialize obviously this is this is with the hope of finding a 
uh, a vaccine or a, or a cure um, that people will still, it's human nature, will want to be together and eat and drink. Um, you know, secondly, people will want that health and wellness will be a bigger part of this. You'll want to go out and go to things like Barry's Boot Camp and F45. And then there's probably an aspect which is which is beauty, which is not a world I know a huge amount about, but people want to go out and, and, and there'll be work done and on you and it's part of the wellness mm-hmm. piece. So I think it's it's what do what do people leave their house for and go into properties on high streets? When when the high street has been decimated and if you know only sixty percent of people come back from from closures, what does that look like? Um but yeah, I think hospitality will definitely come back, but it's in what format will be the be the question. Yeah, I think it's a lot of the kind of crowding of venues as well. I think might be, you know, it'll be a slow phase to to get back to everyone being comfortable and feeling safe. And yeah. I saw you know a couple of albeit straw polls on on Twitter, but it was more music side of things and it was you know reaching out to their audiences and saying you know how comfortable do you feel going to a big gig and how comfortable you feel going to a small gig and what if it was more socially distanced or whatever. Um, and the numbers were quite damning at the moment. You know, it was like, I'm not going to be going back to a big gig for a while. Um, so, you know, maybe it's festivals will fare better because open air and this and that. So there's definitely going to be a, a capacity thing. So, and I, I think just the big struggle as well is, hospitality-wise and being hospitable and creating an atmosphere and a buzz and, and all the rest of it, if it is distance dining and distance drinking, um, you know, that that could be quite difficult to to muster up. So, you know, hopefully it's yeah. not too long before everyone can, you know, at least be near each other. It'll be interesting to see what the, what the new normal becomes. So let's move on to better things. So if we go back a bit, um, it'd be really good to understand about you know yourself and your background and how you get into hospitality and all these different types of things before we start talking about investments and white rabbit fund and, and all these different things. Sure. Well, um, yeah, I, I started in in the in the finance world, um, so I worked in private equity. Although I guess my first taste of hospitality was working in Millie's Cookies when I was a kid. Um, and I look back very fondly on that. Uh, they were great times. But career-wise, it was it was private equity. So working on investments in fashion, luxury brands, restaurants. Um, I then got involved in the sale of Soho House Group uh, to Ron Burkle. So I was sort of the XL jockey behind behind that deal. Um, and then I that, that was a big jump. Wait a minute, that was a big jump from I was serving stuff in Millie's cookies to I was involved in the sale of some oh, no, house. Right. There, was, there was a university trip and then uh, joining the, the finance the finance world. Um uh, so yes, sorry, I've, I've I've condensed a few years there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was really good at icing messages on cookies and then all of a sudden yeah, well done. <laughs> Yeah, and my side hobby was Excel, and um, uh, yeah, just fell into the right place. Um, uh, yeah, that was a. <laughs> Actually, I will put in a, a side of that. I, you know, Excel was. Uh, I was a very, very sad kid. Uh, yeah, they're, they're real geeky, and um, 
uh, yeah, building Excel was always a, uh, that was the hobby. Um, terrible thing to admit to. Uh, but yeah, that was building sort of investment models. I did a lot of that in my private equity days. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the, the fund that I worked for started doing some advisory and they started advising um, Nick Jones on the sale of the business. And so I got very close to that and spent a lot of time with the management team. Um, and then really they'd been, uh, yeah, that was a business that had been sold for about 250 million then at the time. And it, it, mm. it didn't have all the structures and processes and any invest. It had finance, a, a sort of accountants inside, but it didn't really have financial structuring people. And so I came in house to help um, professionalize that and to help working on the, uh, the rollout of clubs and restaurants around around the world. Um, and so I got involved in all of the, the structuring, the investment side, and then obviously raising money for them. Um, you know, I did their high yield bond issues of 125 million or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, all of the equity raises got to work on that but actually got a lot closer to also the operations of the business and had the amazing, amazing pleasure of starting to walk around in, in new sites. And so one of the first ever projects that I was shown was these these plans for an old bank um, and asked, you know, is it a good idea to invest in this? And and um, you're putting together, so that would, which ultimately became the NED, um, but any, anything from a dirty burger, chicken shop, pizza east, clubs around the world, um, uh, and getting closer to the the commercials of that, obviously the financials, but then watching um, Nick and the team walk into these places and go, yeah, I can I can turn that into a um, a sewer house, and I can spend two hundred and fifty million on it and turn it into the Ned, and and I mean that kind of learning very few people have the, you know, I, I sat opposite Nick and I saw how he was able to launch these new ideas and, and grow them rapidly around the world. Um, and I, it was an incredibly intense time. Um, probably even more intense than my private equity days, which are, uh, you know, known as working silly hours, but it was in an industry that I absolutely love and became totally obsessed with. So um, yeah. uh, my role, I just kind of kept on trying to get involved in as much um, of the new openings and, and future plans as possible. And then I actually, I started moonlighting. Um, uh, I I met the guys from Meat Liquor, uh, Scott and Yanni, and I, I, I think I built a financial model for them because they were looking to do a debt raise. Um, and yeah, put some numbers together for a bit of fun in exchange for some free burgers. And that was successful. And then they introduced me to some other people in the hospitality industry. And, and I just started advising people on the side. Um, not really for any money, but just because I was fascinated by it and wanted to learn and, and understand how other people were growing their businesses. And um, so, was this before Meat Liquor One? Uh, this was just after Meat Liquor One. Yeah, and they they were doing a they were doing incredibly well. 
um, from that first sight and, and, uh, you know, Scott and I were good friends and I just sort of helped out a little bit. Um, and then I met lots of other restaurateurs and people who I would advise on the side for, you know, sometimes a little bit of, um, equity, sometimes a bit of cash and sometimes for just some food, um, or skipping a few. Uh, and it was just a bit of fun to me for an industry and, and I didn't really know where it was going to go. But ultimately what I, what I gained from that was I suddenly had 10 to 12 clients on the side of my day job, which was way more than just a day job. And of people just wanting this kind of support, which didn't really exist in the industry. And so that, uh, it, it just kind of clicked with me very quickly that, there's often you know, the people who start restaurant businesses, it's often chefs who are incredibly creative, but don't know the business side of it. If, if so, a house had, had structural issues in, in, in support required in that area, then, you know, someone with one to three sites or zero sites absolutely would need it as well. And so there was this, yeah. this, this great gap and niche that I could start working in. And, yeah, I'm definitely. I'm more obsessive about growing businesses and exciting launches of businesses than knowing much about food. Um, but that's also provided huge opportunities. You know, I have to find that idea. I have to find that creative, and then we provide the the support and structure around that. Um, but the other thing people always wanted was money. Um, uh, understandably so, and so because of my fund history i was able to go off and and raise a um a small fund with with some high net worth individuals who just trusted me i said look i can i can help people open restaurants um amazingly they trusted me to do so um and and that was it it was the the birth of of white rabbit which you know fund is in the name but really we're a a support platform incubator so I have in-house HR operations, marketing, and finance. That the, the expertise that we go in as a as a task force and support early stage startups. Put all of that process structure help together. Things that they would not be able to afford as a startup business, and then we throw the money in as well. Um, and hopefully that that de-risks any opening. And provides a greater level of support and help for those those launching. Uh, it is so topsy turvy, though, isn't it? Because this is what I find: it's the smaller businesses are the ones that need the most help. Yet they don't get a lot of the time the good people helping them. They don't have the budget. They don't have the structure, the discipline, and so it's a really smart move to be that sort of um, SES crack team for them you know and, and and be there at hand i think it's just such a a smart idea because you you want the best send off as early as possible rather than you know absolutely scraping till you're at seven or eight sites you know and that's the thing that the, the two people who start these businesses you've got one chefs or creatives who are incredibly creative and and create, but may not have all the business acumen and structuring. And how do you fund? How do you structure a debt raise? How do you structure a lease? How do you negotiate these things? 
Or maybe it's an ex-investment banker who's made a few million quid and wants to get into the restaurant industry, um, but doesn't have the obsessive um, obsession with customer experience and quality and brand. And, and so between those two people, if there's nothing else, that's why there are so many failures when these restaurants open. And so I had the amazing pleasure of starting in the brutal finance world and, and learning the structures, the processes, that, that side of things. And then I had half of it beaten out of me by Nick Jones in, um, in, in my Soho house days to actually say, you know, you have to spend a bit more money. You have, you know, you can't, if you're just cutting costs and you just focus on money, you very rarely make any in, in the hospitality industry. So I, I just ended up in a really lucky position where I've I've been expe- been exposed to the, the the best of both worlds, and it provides a bit of a unique insight. And I've I've built my team to to echo that. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast is also brought to you by BDO, the trusted accountancy and advisory firm. As the finance experts on hospitality, BDO have the experience and the insight to provide solid foundations for your business's future growth. BDO really are the go-to team to help your hospitality business succeed. If you're in need of a dedicated transactional team bolstered with corporate finance, audit and tax services, Talk to BDO, who've got the right expertise, knowledge and experience to drive your restaurant or bars business throughout their full life cycle. As thought leaders across the sector, BDO offers commercial and technical updates specifically tailored to restaurants and bars, including their annual hospitality reports. BDO also have a well-established network in the industry that spans across finance directors, suppliers and advisors, and they are always willing to use this to their clients and their contacts' advantage. Get in touch today at bdo.co.uk to chat about how they can help take your hospitality business to the top. And please say that I sent you. And with Soho House, you know, obviously that was a great learning. Was there any other learnings that you you took away from there about hospitality or opening or engagement of teams or quality or, you know, what what were the main things you took from there, really? I mean, it, it was absolutely fundamental in, in creating what I am, um, what I do today. I think the importance of being able to grow a brand and keep it relevant Um you know, this 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 idea of the whole the, the world of opening 20 restaurants 30 restaurants a year is totally dead but can you take a great brand and grow it in a flexible way around the world um that for me you know, they've been going god 25 longer years um it was maybe that was the last time i was there and that is a it's a proven business of actually if you're really careful about how you grow and it's something that we fundamentally build into white rabbit is i'm not looking to open 20 restaurants a year um a because it's really bloody hard work um that's not going to give you a fun life um but what we can do is if we have 
if we have five or six brands that we're supporting, if each one opens one restaurant a year or two restaurants a year and the founders of those business who are, you know, they are decent equity stakeholders, they are fully involved, they focus on those, on that growth of their business. And as a group, White Rabbit is growing rapidly, but we're not killing a brand by just saying, let's open 20 a year. Um so I think it's quite a unique structure in that way that I don't have to, I don't have this pressure of you have to open at a, at a crazy pace. And I think that was a nice thing to see with Soa House is though they were growing, they grew in a really flexible way. And the houses each was, it's, it's something that gets said quite a lot, but they really did it is each house around the world was slightly different. And off the back of that, they were able to create loads of new concepts. So Chaconis came out of it and, and, and became a really successful brand in its own right. Well, that was acquired, but they've grown it around the world. They were able to open Pizza East and Cowshed. And, and that's actually really formed a fundamental part of what we try and do is I'll look at a business like Lena Stores. Fundamentally, that's a restaurant uh, or pasta bar was, was set up as the original one. But actually, if we want to grow that brand, I'm not going to open 20 pasta bars, but actually we've got the deli business. So we can open a restaurant, a full service restaurant with with deli and restaurants in it. We can open pasta bars. We can do online grocery delivery, which has just launched and, and seems to be doing doing very well. We can do a delivery side of it. We can do coffee and, and wine bars. It's a celebration of Italian um uh, great Italian produce. So there's loads of different flexible ways you can grow that brand without just churning out cookie cutter rollouts. And it's a brand that you, know, you can open in. Could we take it to somewhere like a Japan or could we take it to France? Or yeah, I think those are interesting, interesting questions. Um, now, well, I think even just seeing like the other day, um, Stanley Tucci doing his little. Negroni recipe on Instagram that went yeah. sort of viral. You know, you could just absolutely imagine, you know, that that being, you know, your own vermouth, your own, um, you know, sort of version of Campari, or you complement it with the gin that you have to go in it, or whatever it is. You know, it's just so flexible. It's it's a real foodie I, lifestyle brand. You know, and I think that's what what um, it was a great learning from Soa House is just keeping your mind open to innovations, new ideas, flexible growth. Um, I mean, there's if, to, to say the other things, the, the absolute obsession and hard work of, of Nick Jones to actually grow that business. Um, and uh, yeah, he was always the hardest working person in the building. Um, yeah. I'm trying to emulate that at, at my, at my group is, yeah, we, we work incredibly hard and totally obsess over the customer. And it's that question of every day, are you adding extra value to your to your customers? Because that's what creates raving fans of your business and keeps people coming back. Um, it was fucking hard work, but it was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, though, it's a school of excellence. And yeah. as you say, not many people get the, the chance and not many people actually last the, and stay the course so I think you know it, it's a real badge of honour as a legacy of your career to say you know I, I was part of that and I, and I fared well 
you know. Did did you have a favourite one? Did you have a favourite venue? Oh, from the Sower House properties? Yeah. Do you know what? I always loved the um, the original Sower House in Greek Streets. There was something yep. about uh, every seat had been sat in for 20 years and you could you could smell the sweat and shame and terrible things that had happened in that place. <laughs> there's a, there was a, a, a you know, I, I love the, the New York properties. Uh, yeah, New York's great. Ludlow house is great. I use it for different, for different purposes. Um, but I still, I'm still a member. They still let me in. Um, and uh, yeah, I still, I still use them. Yeah, no, they're great, great places for sure. Um, I think I'm just waiting on the Brighton one opening at the moment, so <laughs> I, I don't know. I was working on that. God, how long ago was that now? Seven tell years me. Like that. So, <laughs> yeah, it's running a bit behind. Yeah, um, well, I suppose it's the Brighton way, isn't it? You know, manana. <laughs> um, so, yeah, well, and then moving forward then to, to, to White Rabbit Fund, obviously we've, we've touched on it a bit, so... You know, you've you've said a lot about the motivations behind setting it up and, and and what it does and what it is. So just to get the full list of of brands that you've you've got and, and you're working on. So you've got Lena, you've got Kim's. What what uh, what other ones are? Crickets, um and mm-hmm. Island Poke. So Island Poke um, is that sort of healthy, casual QSR type brand. Um, yeah, which. Yeah, I, I met James um, when he was doing street food, um, and we backed them to launch their first restaurant in Kingley Street. We've um, we've now got eight of that of that site, and we've we've signed a a franchise deal for France. So that one's a it's 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 really well. Sorry, it's France, Belgium, Luxembourg, and Switzerland. Um, so that's uh-huh. been an incredible deal for us, um, and we're working. Uh, we're working very closely with our partners there to to grow that brand. Um, I think it's in a it's in a great position where it's it's healthy, it's very Instagrammable, it's highly customizable in the sense of if you want to be um, zero calories or if you want to be bulking up at the gym, there's loads of um, different ways. So that's that's a great kind of new modern wave brand. Um, uh, we've got yes, uh, crickets. Which those guys, Rick and Will, um, I met them when they had a, a shipping container in in Brixton with about twenty three seats in it um, uh, in Pop Brixton, and we we backed them to launch their first their first site, and there's now three. Um, and yeah, if you haven't, it's sort of a modern um, modern take on Indian cuisine, but local ingredients, but with a modern Indian twist. Um, Kim's, which is with Andrew Wong, which is a similar setup of modern take on on uh, well-known uh, Chinese dishes, um, and then Lena Stores, which is an old Italian heritage brand, which we we basically worked with the um, the family at the deli to take the brand of the deli and turn it into a restaurant, and now we have a site in. Um, King's Cross, which is uh, deli and restaurant together. We have the the pasta bar in Soho, and we have um, a little kiosk site in Arcade Food Theatre. So, uh, yeah, four brands at the moment. I'm. I also have a. Uh, uh, this is a this is a, a world exclusive for you, um, Mark. Okay. <laughs> we're um, we're developing a number of hotels as well in the UK, um, or basically design, develop, and then operate 
um, the F and B parts of hotels. And and really, my my idea there is we um, we've built this team that 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 can develop new brands. You know, we're always in at the early stage supporting um, founders with the creation of these brands and with the operations and and um, and actually, I think the the hotel market has been totally broken um, with how F and B deals are done. It's they they find a they find a, a fancy chef with a big name. They they go out and um, uh, you know pay them a lot of money to design a menu. They turn up for the press shoot and then they disappear afterwards. And so you see this great opening and then it falling off a cliff. Yeah. Um, my idea was well, actually, if we have a a group that can uh, bespokely design and develop new brands for ground floors and then operate them as well because we have this operating platform. Well, yeah, if I don't make any money on the design and development piece and I, I make money when the hotels make money and from the operation, well, actually everyone's incentivized to do the same thing um, or to do, to do well out of it rather than just taking a big check as a, as a, a known chef. So we're, and would this be different concepts, like different for for everything, or would it be a of a similarity? Or well, that's what do you think? The whole idea is it's bespoke. Um, uh-huh. We will we will look at. I mean, these are these are hotels. I can't give away exact locations yet, but these are, yeah. are hotels in super prime locations that um, uh, that want something bespoke for that area. But you know, we've we've been in a position where we've we've backed. Indian, Chinese, Italian, Hawaiian, and and there's a there's a there's a skill set there. We still will, you know, we still need to find that that rock star chef, and we still need to find that. But it's just about helping um, hotels, office spaces, etc., providing that hospitality um, support function um, because hospitality is a really tough game. Um, but actually, if you have an outfit that that is that is set up with a support platform and um, an ability to really work with them and have multiple brands. So your 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 support cost is split over a number of different things that they're operating. That actually becomes a really interesting offer. So that that's something I've been been working on um, and and is developing at the moment. And we're looking at a, a number of hotels um, uh, in the UK at the moment to 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 launch. There's very few that do it well, um, very few. And it, it almost is that there's like a barrier in, in guests' minds a lot of the time, which is I'm just not going to eat in the hotel, you know. But there's a few that pull it off really well. well um, you know, you've got Mama Shelter and things like that. I think they all seem to, you know, it feels like a good place to be and it's all part of one thing and, you know, it's quite good. It's weird the mindset in the hotel. I've been spending a bit of time in the, the, the that market, and the mindset in the industry seems to be well. Actually, hotel lobbies is where people have breakfast, and that's it. And then you get people. Mm. This is you know these are old brands now, but you get people who come along and do the Ace Hotel, which is one of the places I started my business. Was sitting there with my my laptop while everyone else around me was creating an app. But it was it was busy from. 7am until when the club was open three o'clock in the morning um and uh, so that f&b space made crazy money it was the same with the hoxton hotel you know that that uh, 
they they just get that offer very white right and yeah you know, we worked obviously on the hoxtons through the soa house connection and they operated their f&b and so our house did it very well they're 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 but so a house the standard but there are still so many hotel operators who just don't get it right um and it's a very different skill set to selling a selling a hotel room um so yeah it's it's an it's an area we're we're exploring um and you know we're, we're also we're looking at now's a really interesting time to look at uh, new brands as well um uh, you know things that are innovating and and who's going to succeed in a post covid world so yeah i think there's um exciting times ahead definitely hi i'm alex from engage and thanks for tuning in to the supersonic marketing podcast each week we'll be bringing you a great tip to supercharge your own digital marketing and this week's comes from fred our head of email marketing who shares his insights on making first impressions count it doesn't matter how great your email content is if users don't open it so it's vital to make sure your first impressions are spot on while it's crucial to nail your subject line don't forget to consider how well it works in conjunction with your pre-header text and sender name subject lines should be short and succinct as you only have a small amount of space to capture your audience's attention be aware of truncation too and avoid positioning specific words in places which could lead to an awkward message if cut off in the wrong spot by an email client. You can also further optimize by adding emojis and personalization, which are proven to increase email opens, but try to stick to no more than a couple of emojis. As for pre-header text, this area is the perfect space for building on the story you started with your subject line. It's a great way to tease your audience about the rest of the content. When it comes to the sender name, most of the time this will be your brand name, but think about whether it could be sent from an individual such as restaurant manager and choose an approach which best suits the campaign content. Finally, A-B testing is an excellent way of proving which subject line, pre-header and sender name resonate most with your audience. Test this by sending a couple of versions of your email to a small portion of your audience, each with a different variant and see which performs best. Then send the best performing test campaign to the remainder of your database. If you need help with your own email campaigns, then head over to engageinteractive.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can see how we've helped some of the UK's most ambitious and successful hospitality brands with theirs. Cheers, and enjoy the rest of the episode. And then, you know, what's the sort of journey like then between you meeting the the talent, I suppose, and then working through with them and, um, you know, getting it out to the the launch and then what's the continued journey from there? You know, what, what would people be... Sort of signing up to when they're working with you. Um, it, it sort of really depends on on who we're working with and the expertise they have. You know, the aim is really to act as a task force, and and things change as you go. So, in an early stage, we may off, be be working fully around every aspect of the business, um, but ultimately, our job is to make ourselves as redundant as possible as quickly as possible, so that we can go and focus on other things. So a business like Island Poke is now far more advanced than some of the new startups because it's we're at a level where we've got an, now an in-house finance director, we've got a, a great operations director from who's ex-Pret, we've got um, you know in-house HR. So they are building a their own internal team, and so my white or oh, sorry white rabbit supports shifts then and becomes a focus on right uh, international franchising and and uh, structuring and and future opportunities rather than just 
getting involved in the day-to-day running because they have a team that knows knows how to do that now. Um, so yeah, it's it's a bit of a mix, and it just depends on how on how these uh, how the businesses grow. But but I think the the fundamental difference is if you go to a a private equity fund, pretty much every private equity fund website you go to, it'll say we support founders and and you know we help you grow businesses. Um, and I've been in private equity, and it's largely uh, well it depends how offensive I want to be. <laughs> what what you tend to see, and there are some really great examples out there, so I won't. I, you know, there are exceptions to this rule. But I was in that world, and what you do is you you draw a private, you draw this hockey stick growth chart of we're gonna, this is how we're gonna expand, and then you have a board call once a quarter, and and everyone gets upset when you don't hit that hockey stick, and mm. and it. Yeah, I think the, the fundamental thing when I set up White Rabbit was I want to do things differently and I want to really be a part with a support team of not just finance professionals sitting there checking numbers, but a team of very, very experienced operators and HR, you know, people who can genuinely help when you've got a question about uh, uh, furloughing how does that work well, we, we have a very senior hr person who's on top of that and then uh, helps everyone with that or yeah, any any issues that uh, you know, do we have we have best in class marketing person and then how can we really genuinely answer people's questions rather than just check numbers hmm. and then what what about the the balance for you with the instinct of being an investor in you but also amazingly you're into brands as well which a lot of the time you know doesn't does you know finance people and and the fluffier stuff and the, and the brand stuff maybe doesn't always always click so when you're looking at it you know has it got to tick both boxes or would you take something that was maybe more of a uh i guess a, a a project of love or a project that would just be serious returns and not so much about brand yeah i think um this is where I have to I have to come clean on something that I'm, as I said, I, well, I'm not I'm not hugely talented at food um, in the sense of I, I can't my operations director can taste a dish and tell you every aspect that goes into that. My favourite restaurant in the world is probably Nando's. Um, I, I yeah, yeah, we'll find this charge. <laughs> we have they are great, um, but fundamentally, I've got I, I look at things from an investment perspective. Um, but in this in this new world, in the sense of there has to be, I'm not in this to create art for art's sake. Um, uh, there are great restaurants that I am I am so happy they exist, but they don't have. My job is not in you know making a little bit of profit from. Um, there has to be something that can grow and expand. That does, as I say, it doesn't mean opening twenty restaurants a year, but it it means something that has some longevity and some scalability in a flexible, diversified way. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say I wouldn't. I have to love everything I I invest in. Just some, you're going you're going to spend so much time around it. Um, but I think more so than ever, you also have to. I need to, there needs to be that tension between creative and sort of finance and support functions because, and I, 
I, my ideas, I'll have the phrase is strong opinions loosely held. I'll fight my corner, but I don't, if, if I won every battle, I would not have a successful business. You know, I, I need the creative to win constantly. And that was, you know, that that's part of the success of, of Sower House and a lot of other brands is um, if you only looked at that, the return on investment, you will have a very short-lived company. And so I think it just comes down to my my past of working of working in that investment sector, and then then having you know really understanding the requirement to be totally obsessed with with brands and with experience at the the minute level. And then just for some people that don't know as well, just going into the the private equity side of things, mm. you know, what are the options for people if they were looking at that? You know, so. Um, you know, from I mean, I know you're a big fan of crowdfunding, <laughs> yeah. for example. Um, so it'd be quite good to kind of lay it all out. We've touched on bits of it, but it'd be quite good to lay it all out. You know, if you're trying to go from one or two sites to seven to seventeen to seventy, you know what what happens there? Yeah, and I, I think it's important to say what the White Rabbit Fund our structure is not right for everyone. Um, there are a number of different, if there's people out there looking to to raise funding, there's a number of different options. Um, we, My interest is in being a, a proper support platform. So if I have a, if there's a group which has 10 restaurants that are already doing incredibly well, um, there are funds that just put money in. Um and the, the and that's and that's great. Um, and there are some very good names out there that that do their that and have a great successful successful record. Um, so private equity, venture capital. There are a few generalist funds who invest. That typically, at that larger scale, there are um, you're looking at one to two million of EBITDA, all sort of kicking off that amount of cash every year before they will look at you because they need a certain level of security and a certain level of proof that that business is successful. Um, At the earlier stages, there are um, angel investment networks who, you know, typically it's people with, you've made a bit of money, they get SEIS or EIS tax support. And so they'll put, they'll, they'll put money in. Um, you're hoping they'll have some some expertise, but obviously you can hire um, board directors, etc., for yourself to help with that. Um, and then obviously there is there is crowdfunding, um, which for investee companies um, can be phenomenal because you can get great valuations. And that's about it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, no, look, I, I think there are some obviously very successful businesses that have raised through crowdfunding. Um, I personally have, I, I've had issues in the past with um, basically people, you look at certain valuations and you look at certain, this is a business that is, is valuations are based on, it's an operating company. I'm very passionate about this. It takes a lot of money to build a restaurant. Margins are tight. You know, we're lucky. Our, our brands have great return on investment, but it is a you have to spend a lot of money to build a restaurant and to to grow a restaurant business. We are not a tech company. Um, 
people have been in crowdfunding have been valuing restaurant businesses like they are tech businesses that if it's successful you suddenly can have thousands of them around the world or it just doesn't work like that um and so it's more it's more a fear and a desire to protect the investors um and their money uh of just saying that i think some of those some of those deals need professional or at least some kind of um uh restrictions um around them um because otherwise i think there's a lot of we're going to see it especially through this uh through this disaster a lot of people will lose a lot of money via um these yeah they get protections because it's eis so they won't lose as much money but people have just got to be very very careful and and that's why i think it's so important to have a professional structure who are who are experienced in the industry um around that it doesn't have to be white rabbit but it yeah get some gray hairs on make sure there are some gray hairs on the board of the company you're investing in if i was to look at it from an investee perspective investor perspective or from an investee perspective get exactly the same because uh, and sorry this is a, this is what i'm really passionate about yeah, in, yeah. In, uh, treat it as a marriage um and this this gets said a lot but you don't want to just get into bed with the richest person in the room or well some people do um <laughs> but you know you this is a raising the money is stage 1 of a very long journey and if you if you raise at crazy valuations you've got a long period of time um uh with difficult conversations and if you but if it's fair and everyone's doing well and everyone everyone makes money you know, it's a key thing when we're talking to international partners i want my international partners to become incredibly rich out of this because if they do they they stay on the journey and they keep they keep growing with us um so yeah i think there's there's just got to be a fairness um I think that's that started as a question about where can people get money and just turned into a rant about uh, just. <laughs> with it. No, I mean it, it's just to try and get your head right. I mean, people listening to this, you know, might be more of a, a marketing background and things like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, you know, I, I'm never very gend up or sure about that whole other world of you know how you raise money and, and and what options are out there for you and I think there'll be a lot of people that would you know get, get a lot from you you know sort of talking about it yeah. from Supersonic Inc this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast the Supersonic Marketing Podcast is also brought to you by Atenzi the world's leading gamified simulation training provider Even before the COVID-19 crisis, a LinkedIn study found that more than half of learning and development professionals were looking at remote learning solutions. Given hospitality's new reality, how do you plan to train your staff to accelerate your business out of these tough times? With Atenzi's gamified simulation training, you can accurately recreate the situations and environments that your people will face day in, day out to engage and rapidly develop their abilities. Forget static e-learning, dusty training manuals and passive videos and embrace training's new era with Atenzi. Find more information and get started today at atenzi.com forward slash restaurants. You know, how 
are you going to sort of keep up with trends and, and, and identify the ones that explode? So I think a wee while ago you were you were travelling east um, when, when we were on a few calls about doing the podcast and, um, you know, where are you getting your inspiration and, and how are you keeping up to date with things and, and you know, is it futurology or, you know, how, how are you sort of staying ahead of everyone else? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd, I'm not sure I'd be that bold as to say that I am, but I, I, I think there's a most good investments don't just land in your inbox. Um, uh, this is a this is a market where I, I obsessively eat. <laughs> that's, a, that's a real job, um, and and travel uh, travel around the world. Um, it's the most amazing part of my job. Is I go on these crazy culinary tours where I'll I'll try and um uh and yeah i did uh, new york miami mexico um uh last year after um, on lockdown i've lost all concept of time and dates and things but um uh yeah i'm off to i was meant to be in japan right now um uh i, I constantly in and out of but i will go to these places and i will line up 10 restaurants well Actually, no. Sorry, that's that's pushing it. I've done nine. Was my, nine was my limit one day. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's sort of, and, and you'll go in and you'll eat. You'll you'll order five dishes, have a spoonful of each, and then go to go to um, uh, move on to the next one. And you get some very strange looks from from waiters saying, "Did you really hate all your food?" Um, but I. <laughs> There are so many places around the world you can you can learn about new exciting exciting ideas. You know, poke had been around for 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 a long time um, in the east coast, um, sorry, in the west coast, um, and uh, yeah. So go, still going to pop up markets, street food markets. Um, that the joy of this industry. That's where all the creativity is happening. Um, and so you can, uh, and I, I'm not doing anything clever. When I went to, when I spotted cricket, there was a two hour queue outside a shipping container. Like they, they've got to be doing something really right. So yeah. All oh, the operations are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I'd like to grandize myself about being, being smart at, uh, you know, at, at investing. You walk into a, a you walk into a street food market and see where the biggest queue is, and that's the first person to go and eat at. Um, but uh, but I think there's um, there's loads of new waves of opportunities to find these people now as well. Um, you know, sitting on Instagram, uh, there you can see what's trending around the world. I, I one of the things I'm working on at the moment is setting up an advisory group. And normally in a private equity fund, you have an advisory group of grey-haired people who've who've been in finance and, and expanded businesses. Um, I want an advisory group of the most influential um, foodie or blogger or Instagrammer because they spend their life being invited to every single new opening around the world of exciting new restaurants. Those are the people that can tell us where the, the next big thing is. So... Um, yeah, that that's a it's a, a thing I'm really 
passionate about and but you've got to be in in grassroots to to really see where the opportunities are um it's not going to be sitting back waiting for someone to email you and what about the property market you know what's what you see in there <laughs> oh well, this is <laughs> this is going to be a fascinating one i think the property market prior to this had um had massive structural issues and was the the model was was wrong um uh, covid-19 will utterly decimate what was remaining of the high street um and um yeah i think you know, a lot of people just won't have the money to to invest in um opening opening new sites and the model i think will change as to what is it an expected turnover from restaurants um and so you simply will not be able to to meet the rents that were being paid with the level of rents and with the level of business rates um and then fit out costs that market was a was a mess and i think um it will take time for this to filter through to landlords to realize there has been a seismic shift in what the market is yeah they don't they don't see this change and immediately go okay well we're going to take 20 30% off our rents if not more might be required this is going to take time where you are going to have to start seeing empty properties across the high street and landlords are going to have to sit on that and feel quite a considerable amount of pain before they realize actually our rents are at the wrong um the wrong level and that restaurants landlords historically have made um you know, they were often making way more money than the operators actually in that building but having none of the risk associated and um so yeah, i think there's going to be a phenomenal amount of property available um the question will be i think it'll take it like take time for rents to adjust i think some of the really onerous clauses of things like upward only rent reviews um of having a really high base rent and then a really high turnover rent i think these kind of things will start disappearing as as landlords become the ones desperately looking for great quality new wave brands yeah you know, the, the big players will survive your your kfc's your mcdonald's your whatever but the smart landlords are people like argent um and shaftsbury who really try and build interesting groups of of great quality restaurants and that what's that's what creates the footfall that's what creates the excitement to come there and visit the stores and visit and work in those areas and in a massive recession my god are you going to need footfall drivers for that and i think restaurants will be a a really really important part of rebuilding the high street and giving a reason for people to come out of their home and not sit on a a zoom call um yeah and so yeah i just think we're going to have to we're, we're going to have to uh, it'll take time for that to bed in but there will be loads of opportunities in the future if i may go off on one slight tangent which is um mm-hmm. so this might be very boring for a lot of people but i think one of the one of the big limiting factors to that is debt and a lot yep. of 
a lot of businesses that will have survived this will have had to take on um, COVID loans or, or built up, um, taken on a lot of debts just to pay rents and pay losses and things like that and reopen. And what that means is you then, to open anything else, typically you would have a decent chunk of debt and a decent chunk of equity. Now it's going to all be equity funded. And actually that beca- that means there's going to be, you're going to need a lot more cash to put into these, these, these buildings. And, and that is going to slow down the rate of investment. Um, and so more, more properties will be available because people just will not be putting, growing as fast or the returns won't stack up to open more sites. So the demand for landlords will be considerably lower. It's, it's quite a tricky one, actually, because, you know, when all these announcements came out, you know, everyone was, you know, quite excited about the potential of it. And a lot of it will have done a lot of people a lot of good. Hmm. But when you look at a lot of businesses, you know, apart from the furloughing and, and things like that, and, and, you know, if there isn't a rent break or whatever, you're going, A, it's a loan, as you say, you've got to pay it back. So it back. it's going to be hard coming back at normal trade, and never mind that you've got a debt. And then the second one is, um, you know, all the, all the deferments and all the rest of it. And I think that's good short term, but long term, I think a lot of people will spend what they don't have because they'll just kind of go, oh, it's tax money, I'll be able to, you know. So yeah. there's a lot of pressure came back onto the business side of it to, to A, pay back and B, be self-disciplined enough to to not eat into, you know, the, the money you've got put away that you'll, you'll owe the government. So totally. it's it's quite frightening, really. Yeah. And banks won't, you know, banks will have lent out more money than, than they were planning to in the next however many years. They won't be mm. to lend out any more money after this to to a new mm. restaurant group looking to open. Um, but this this is unfortunately why we are going to see a, a, a bloodbath. No matter how much more support is provided, it's just the level. What yeah. is the level of that bloodbath? Um, you know, and, and I think it's amazing that there are there are uh, people like Jonathan Downey and other others in the industry that are really pushing for. Um, uh, um, uh, these support functions it's it really is it's it's so needed for restaurants to keep this industry alive and keep it yeah it is it is such an important part of of the structure of of society um 50 percent of this is a property game and so so the question you ask is so important of you know what is going to happen there and how are these how are these things going to adjust um adjust in the future to to the new market. And what about, you know, predictions coming up? I mean, I know you've not got a crystal ball and, and we're in, you know, obviously a time that no one else has ever really been in. But, you know, thinking on the positive side of things, you know, ones to watch. So is there any brands that you think, you know, have got you excited? Is there any food groups, food types? I mean, obviously you don't want to give away your, your secrets and, and all that stuff. But I think from that perspective, you know, it's just saying... You know, where are you seeing the, the you know the next year or, or two going in terms of food food and drink trends? Sure, I mean, obviously, you're absolutely right. I wouldn't want to give away names of things I'm 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 watching. Um, um, unfortunately, sorry. Uh, That's all right. I, I think I think what's really interesting is you are going to see 
such creativity and such innovation um, of now what is going to work in this new market. And I think it's yeah, it's some buzzwords that, that we've looked at before that actually become even more important now. Um, and that's things like a flexible growth model, something that works both online and in physical stores, because I think you know, that's what I'm interested in is in taking advantage of property deals to to actually make some good good margins there, have a flagship store, have a brand, and then you know, is there an online business as well and, and other areas you can take it. Um, uh, you know, I think I think health and wellness is obviously going to be a hugely important part of this. But I think there will be businesses that do totally change the structure of how hospitality works and i think it's keeping an eye out for for those i'm not i i'm not sure i've i've seen it yet i've got a few ideas um yeah we're that we're working on but uh yeah it's so interesting i, I had a, a i did a podcast a wee while ago with um gary vaynerchuk a couple of years back hmm. and he's kind of the you know american rah-rah sort of business digital business man um and a, I was absolutely crapping myself, but B, um, he said some really cool stuff and he was a little bit harsh on, on some things that, you know, I got some feedback on, but one of the main things was him saying, you know, if you were starting a business today, bearing in mind what we're just going through, how would that change? So actually, a premises just might not feature at all, you know? And, you know, if you were starting prep today, would you actually do it from a dark kitchen or somewhere remote or, you know, so somewhere the, do something digitally or, you know, it's, it was so interesting what he was saying. Uh, yes. I think, I think, I think there's a, that's not a world I'm interested in. This is a terrible thing to say. Yeah. There are other people who understand tech and the, the world of investing in tech is, is as risky in the sense that you can pump a whole load of money into new, into new apps and ideas. And then, and then they, uh, the next person comes along and, and yeah, it's, it's the same, it's the same business. My fundamental, <laughs> uh, well, sorry, one of the fundamental things that I'm trying to do is, is go, people will want to leave the house. You're not just going yeah. to online and that's the business I want to create. And I, I want to be involved in businesses that bring life to high streets, um, allow people to connect in person and socialize, create real jobs for people and real incomes for, for staff and for suppliers and exciting growth opportunities for them. I have no real interest in setting, you know, sure, there will be businesses where someone's investing in creating the next Flappy Birds or whatever, and they can make a billion pound company by one guy sitting in a room on his own. Great. I'm not entirely sure that's how it work, but works, but you can see I don't invest in tech. Um, so I think there are, I want to start with that premise of how do we make use of these buildings and, and bring people out? But then with a fundamental understanding of the operating model has to change and you have to have an online business. You have to have a delivery business. You have to have um, uh, some kind of cook at home. You have to have some kind of, um, yeah. So, so all of those other aspects of the business become totally or so much more important. 
and does it then work in dark kitchens? But look, I've, I've dabbled in dark kitchens and they have their own disasters and issues to deal with. What did you find with the dark kitchens then? <laughs> well, it, 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 the problem at the time with that is if you open a dark kitchen, and my grand idea was to offer um, Chinese, Indian and poke from one kitchen, um, it, it, when people are at work, um, you're typically busy from sort of 6, 6.30 to 8, 8.30 for delivery. And so if you just set up a kitchen to pay staff to sit in a box in a car park, you still have to pay them for nine hours a day because otherwise they'll get a job somewhere else. They want to get paid a decent amount of money. Um, and and so if you're, you're hiring someone for nine hours a day and you are then selling in a kitchen and it's when people get home from work and they're selling from 6.30 to, to 8.30, the maths of that simply doesn't add up. Um, so I think there is a, or, not, or it doesn't add up on the basis of the percentages that the likes of these delivery platforms um, uh, will charge. What does make sense is when you have a restaurant that already has staff in there cooking food for real customers and interactions happening, and then you have that as an add-on. Um, but you know, that's at the moment, that's my view on it. I think that model and that market will change and adapt and there will be different ways to service via dark kitchens. And but and I think this this period now has accelerated that uh, a thousandfold more. Um, so I think there's going to be some really interesting. But the the previous model of just let's sit in a car park and cook for a few hours at the end of the day, that wasn't going to make anyone rich based on the existing structure. But there are models that are evolving that will be. Um, uh, you're, I, I'm working on on one at the moment, which I can't go into too much detail about. But it is, um, it's units that are multi-purpose, and and delivery is an aspect of that. But it's also a site that's m- making other revenue streams as well. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And then just a couple of other things, so I don't need to let you go. Obviously, you were a bit of a TV star, um, enjoying tofu on Million Pound Menu. Um, so nice. yeah, how did you find that? Sorry, I was talking over by over you by being, <laughs> being very concerned by the label of TV star. <laughs> oh, it was great. I mean, what well, was so cool for me because, like, you know, I was – watching it with my wife and all that. I'm like, yeah, I know him and I know them. And, you know, it was a really cool thing to, to sort of look at, you know, it was, it was brilliant. Um, thanks. <laughs> well, I, I think there's, there's very few, um, <laughs> there's very few people stupid enough to be investing professionally in restaurants. Uh, so luckily I was, I was in a list that wasn't very long um, when, when BBC producers were asking for people who invest. Um so uh look it was a it was a, a really fun experience um i quite like the fact just seeing a different side of this the premise was quite nice to see a creative chef and then how that works with the business side of it which i don't think anyone who, there were plenty of um uh cooking shows 
but no one had really looked at, well, how do these things actually get created and what's that process behind it? So I think the idea was great. I think it's, it's, it's difficult to put in a TV show because it's actually quite a long, uh, you know, you don't meet someone for two hours and agree to give them half a million pounds. It's, it's usually a, a slightly longer, um, longer conversation. Um, but so, yeah, it was, it was a fun experience. Um, it, it was TV land. So, you know, uh, it's not typically the way you would, you would do these things, but I think it gave a, a nice little insight and, you know, apparently we're, we're very big in Mexico. <laughs> no, I, I thought it was brilliant, but I, I think you, you had the, the tofu incident though, didn't you? <laughs> well, I'm not sure if it's an incident. It's just a, uh, <laughs> I've never tasted any tofu that was that exciting. Um, no, I just, I just had everyone kind of labelled. So you were tofu guy. Um, David Page was sort of salt guy. Yeah. Um, everyone was just kind of had their own nickname across the show. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that, but that... That is true. You, during this process, you go to a lot of tastings. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I'll, I'll still go to tastings and I'll sit with incredibly talented chefs and culinary director and head of operations. And, and I still act as I'm average Joe because I do not have the most uh, mature of palates. It's quite interesting to see you know, chefs creating really over-the-top wanky recipes and uh, and actually there's a, I, I've always quite liked the simplicity of things. So, yeah, so those, res- yeah. those responses were genuine and a lot of kind of, oh, that's that's actually, it happens in the real world that all the time. Well, I, th- I think there's a thing where you're, you're absolutely right, which is, you've got, A, maybe there is a target audience and maybe it is super foodie and, and great palates and all the rest of it, but what is it they said in Peep Show? You know, people, people like Coldplay, you know, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't trust people. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit like, you know, the other night there was a poll on Twitter uh, about crisps, right? Right. Everybody's voting and it got thousands of uh, entries, you know. And and the top one for, you know, one of the main sort of almost to the final was Walker salt, ready salted, yeah. you know. And, and and that in itself speaks volumes, you know, and, and there's no disrespect to, you know, anyone like Costa or whatever, but, you know, when you look at the, the, the mass market out there and, you know, people are quite generic, you know, what's the number one curry that people are having? What's the number one Chinese people are having? What's the, you know, if you're going on mass, yeah. you know, it ain't, it ain't this niche, you know, intricate, you know, sort of subtle stuff, you know, it's... Um, the most and, interesting prediction would be if I put a burger onto any of our menus, even in, um, <laughs> yeah, in, in any of them, even, you know, cricket or Lena, so that would be the best-selling item. Um, yeah. Which is, and, and I think we have to be one of the fundamental things that, that we try and provide, or the, the chefs leading these businesses try and provide, is, is an education or an authentic, authenticity, and so there needs to be that creative. There needs to be kind of um, taking customers on a journey and introducing them to to new dishes, because I think that's just such a valuable a valuable thing, and a, it, it in, improves our food scene incredibly. Um, but then there's also got to be an acceptance of this is a business, and you've you've got to make money to keep the doors open. Um, yeah. And so you've also sometimes got to offer 
a crowd pleasing dish. And you know, Kim's is a good example of that. Of um, you can have there's a dish we have called saliva chicken, uh, which which sounds horrendous, but it's a it's a really interesting Chinese dish. That's the the English translation. And you can have one of those dishes to to take people on a journey and, and educate them. But then you've also got to have shredded duck um, because that's yeah. it's what people expect. So it's trying to keep, again, trying to keep that balance. Definitely. Well, the last couple of things then was just a, a really quick fire round of, of questions for a bit of fun. So uh, we call it Mark out of 10. So best city to eat in? Uh, I would say... You know, I, I'm still. I love London. I've got plenty, plenty of places that I that I still want to go in London. My list keeps getting bigger. Um, yeah, I've had great experience. I go to New York once a year to to eat it, uh, to do a food tour. I love Miami, but yeah, London's probably still still. Uh, there's enough to keep you busy here. Yeah, for sure, definitely. And best restaurant. Uh, you're allowed, well, I don't know, you probably don't want to say what your best restaurant is out your own, um, but uh, uh, yeah, outside of your own maybe, uh, what's your what's your best restaurant? It's like picking a favourite child, there's definitely a favourite child, but I'm not allowed to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I do, Every, all, all of them difficult children that you love uh, in, in different ways. Um, <laughs> I, well, I, I, do you know what, I, I don't really have, apart from Nando's, the aforementioned, um, I don't really have a... I just love trying new things and I've had great, yep. amazing experiences of places like, you know, the last one I had a great experience at was um, uh, the pig in Canterbury, um, which was just phenomenal, the restaurant there. Um, and I've, I've had dreams about this um, um, uh, crispy pork skin, which is just mind blowing. Um, so nice. yeah, I, I, I I really struggle when people say, what's your best restaurant? Because I just love, I love the new and exciting and constantly trying things. So apart from a chicken pita or whatever, um, what's your best dish? <laughs> um, oh, favorite dish. Again, it's sort of like from my travels, I've just had the most amazing experiences and recent ones that comes to mind. Um, the stone crab at Joe's Crab Shack in Miami is amazing. Um, wow. There was a bone marrow dish at um, a place called Arca in Tulum, which is um, uh, run by an ex-Noma chef. Um, my, my deathbed dish, though, uh, is uh, – <laughs> this, this says so much about, about me and my simple life uh, – Betty Crocker brownie mix. I'll take that any day. Uh, oh really cheap stuff you buy in Sainsbury's uh, yeah it, uh, brownies without well most most brownies without messing around with sticking nuts in them or ruining them yeah I'll, I'll, that's always my favorite dish that if I'm ever in a restaurant the brownie is the one to go for and what you just eat the max or no. do you cook it <laughs> no, no I'm not that that psychopathic uh, uh, <laughs> yeah it's it's just just freshly baked brownies Nice. For a slightly more sensible one, I'd go with the bone marrow dish at Arca in Tulum. It was just mind blowing. Cool. I need to check that one out. And then, what about your best drink? Oh, that's easy. That comes from my days at um, at, at Soa House, uh, late into many a night of just a, a really good old fashioned with um, with Woodford Reserve. Lovely. Nice. Yeah. Well, listen. 
thanks so much for taking the time to chat to me today. It's been great. You know, it's been long overdue, and obviously we were hoping to do this in person. So we'll we'll put that to rights at some point, and uh, I can definitely vouch for a long drunken lunch um, at, at Lena and um, King's Cross at a, at a great time with a good friend there. And yeah, I had to even get an Uber home to Brighton. I was so out of it. So <laughs> we, we were very well looked after, uh, which was brilliant. So thanks so much. I wish you really well. And um, yeah, I hope everything goes okay for you. So Chris, thanks so much. Great. Thanks, Mark. Cheers. So a massive thanks to Chris for spending the time talking to me. It was really great to chat to him today and it was just really life-affirming to hear his positive attitude. And because he's so agile and he's an investor and he's got this slightly different business model, I think he's in a great position to be positive and optimistic about what the future might bring. So good luck to him and good luck to all the brands that sail with him. A massive thanks also to you for listening and sharing, rating, reviewing and subscribing. Really appreciate it. Please do tell one more person every week to tune in and listen to the Supersonic Marketing Podcast. So I hope that it will really help them in their business get as much out of this as humanly possible. A massive thanks also to our headline partners, Engage Interactive. So for anything digital that you need, please get in touch with Engage Interactive and ask for Alex and I'm sure he'll help you out. Huge thanks also to our premium partners, BDO, for all things financial, strategic, mergers, acquisitions, business advice. Do get in touch with them at bdo.co.uk and ask for Peter and him and the team will definitely help you out too. Huge thanks to Gaz and Gabby for putting the episode together as usual. Really, really appreciate all of your help. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off. Bless you. Thanks for listening. And I really hope that you got so much out of this episode and so much value that will really help your brand boom. Boom.